Okay, uh, if you're just joining us, we're studying the Apostles' Creed. If you have not held on to your copy, there's an extra. Maybe take a picture of it or put it in your Bible or your purse. Or I'll just keep printing more and we'll just do it that way. Uh, we're in the middle of our study. Thus far we've covered, I guess we're not technically in the middle of the creed, but uh, we've covered, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. We now move on to the middle section of the creed, which is about the um, person and work of Jesus Christ. So, I want us to say this section together, uh, starting at the beginning and ending with, He will come to judge the living and the dead. But in order to do that, I have given all of the copies away, and I'm going to need one. <laughs> haven't memorized it yet. You haven't memorized? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here, here's some more. You got one. Okay. All right. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. We can stop there. Uh, Very good. Alright. Jesus of Nazareth is easily the most loved and the most hated man in the history of the world. He has billions of devoted followers throughout history uh, who worship Him as God Himself. People from all over the globe as well as millions upon millions of enemies both religious and secular. So, uh, for anyone, it's a good question, who is Jesus? But for us especially, we need to know. And we can boil it down from the Apostles' Creed under two headings, Jesus' person and Jesus' work. But before we get there, let me ask you this. Um, Many in our day like to say things such as, I don't like creeds, we don't need creeds, no creed but Christ. Or, maybe a more modern uh, expression of that would be, we don't need doctrine, just a relationship with Jesus. So what would you say to that? If someone said that to you. Yeah. Very well said. Doctrine is maybe a scary word for some, but it just means uh, teaching, summary, teaching of 
who Jesus has revealed himself to be. So if you say, if they say, I just want a relationship, then a good response would be, okay, well, who is Jesus? And they might say, well, he's the Son of God. He's the Lord. He's, you know, the Savior. And it's like, well, now you're just telling me about the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> so apparently you don't really hate creeds that much. Uh, I think that's, you know, it sounds good, but it's really not good. Um, now, I get it. You don't just want to have dry, dusty creeds without a relationship. And we have to emphasize the fact that we have a personal God who's entered into a covenant with us. And we have a relationship with Him through Christ. But um, don't pit doctrine and relationship if you're tempted to, don't pit those against each other because who is Jesus? We need to know who He is and how, the doctrines are simply those things that tell us who He is, who He has revealed Himself to be. Chris, um, so in regards to doctrine and creeds, I wonder if some of the resistance to that isn't related to what some people would incorporate as creedal and then other people you build approaches to understanding the doctrine or whatever on top of that. And I guess it's that transition from what is truly orthodoxy, what is essential, <clears throat> to what is somebody's interpretation right. on top of interpretation, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is we need to get back to the Scriptures. And that's what you'll hear in that. And that's where we say, yeah. I mean, we, like we've said, the creed is not an ultimate authority. It, it's there uh, as a help a subordinate authority, which is not infallible. It's, it's not on par with Scripture, but it's supposed to serve to teach us basic teachings or, or lead us to basic teachings of Scripture. But I think you're right. I mean, I think, to be fair, a lot of people that would say that, their main concern is we need to get back to Scripture. What we would say is, okay, well, what does Scripture say about who Jesus is? And when they would say that, we would say, well, that's what the Apostles' Creed says, you know. So, but I think you're right, and and I think we need to be charitable in that. Um, but you know, I think when we when we think about it culturally, there's a lot of people that want to have a relationship with Jesus. But when you ask them who is Jesus, they might be having a relationship with another Jesus. I mean, we can only know God as He's revealed Himself, and He's revealed Himself specifically in the person of work in Christ. Um, so we want to know Jesus of the Bible, and uh, does that Jesus teach us certain things about who He is, about what He's done? Yes, He does. So that's, you know, the idea here. All right, um, let's see. When we talk about the person of Christ, uh, we're really going to we'll talk about the work of Christ more next week. I mean, you can't really talk about one without the other, but our focus this week is going to be on the person of Christ. Will is going to lead you through the work of Christ next week. But uh, when we talk about the person of Jesus, what are the two big categories that we have to make sure we cover? Um. I guess it's not a specific enough question. He, his two natures. What are the two big categories? Jesus' two natures. God and man. Divinity and humanity. Uh, Jesus is fully God and fully man. So, does this mean that Jesus is two persons? Like, does He have two minds? Does He have a divine mind and a human mind? No. No. <laughs> 
He is one person with two distinct natures, divine nature and human nature. Uh, does any, this is bonus points. You know, it wasn't in the uh, questions that I sent out, but does anyone know what the big theological term for that is? Hypostatic union. Hypostatic <laughs> union. And you might say, like, is that word really helpful? I mean, can't we just say something less difficult? But it, you got to understand, one of the points of the creed is connecting us to the church throughout history. And early church, Latin was a big deal, and that was kind of one of the predominant languages. And so... That is just a term that means person. Uh, so when we talk about he's one person in union, two natures, right? There's two natures, one person. That's the idea. Um, <clears throat> okay, good. Hedge, bonus points. Thanks. Way to go. All right. Yeah, that's it. Well, yeah, that's right. Let's talk for a minute about Jesus' divinity, the fact that He is fully God. Uh, the first couple lines of this section about Jesus in, in the Creed, they point us to Jesus' divinity. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. So how does the title Son of God point us to Jesus' divinity? Because there are passages in the Bible that refer to sons of God as either angels or humans. An example uh, would be in Job 1 and 2 where it's in reference to angels or Exodus, Galatians where it's in reference to humans, other passages as well. So how do we know when we say Jesus is the son of God, how do we know uh, that this is a reference to Jesus' divinity? It's capitalized. Capitalized? (laughs) In the original Greek. That's right. That's right. That's actually, uh, no, but (laughs) your translations will capitalize so as to make a distinction. Uh, Turn to John chapter 5, and I'll show you this. John 5, we'll see that when Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, it is a reference to the fact that He is fully God. Uh, John 5, verse 18. Somebody read that. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Okay. So, it would not have been unheard of to hear a Jew say that God was his father because there is language of father and child in terms of God's relationship to Israel. Um, Though that's probably not the typical way they would have referred to God. But like Isaiah 63, there's that language. But something else is going on here because they're not just thinking, okay, well this is what a Jew might do because of that. Because they pick up stones to stone him. Uh, Which means they think he's just committed blasphemy. And under the law, the blasphemy, you'd be stoned to death. So what Jesus meant by calling God his Father was that he and the Father were one. They said making himself equal with God. And it's clear that the Jews understood that this was his message. They picked up stones to stone him because he was claiming to be God. And they thought he was blaspheming, so they were going to kill him. 
Um, but then in the whole next section, if someone will read verses 19 to 23, Jesus goes into the unity of the Father and the Son so as to leave no doubt that this is what he was talking about. So 19 to 23, somebody read that. Okay. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Okay, stop there for a second. But up to that verse, you could almost say like, well, that doesn't necessarily mean... You could see, I mean, yeah, I mean, He does what the Father does, just like any boy. But then He's getting into the Father raises the dead and gives life to whom He will. The Son raises the dead and gives life to... So now He's saying more specifically, keep going. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Okay. So, that's explicit and clear. Um, he Even so much as saying, God is not the judge. I am. Because God has given me that authority because I am one with Him. So, uh, He's not mincing words. They get His message loud and clear. It's interesting that He gets more clear after they pick up stones to stone Him. I don't think you understood. Let me, let me clarify. But... Um, that's uh, what's going on there. The Father and the Spirit attest to this as well. Uh, for example, at Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Also at the transfiguration, the Father speaks from heaven. You know, when Peter and uh, James and John, Peter thinks that it would be because Moses and Elijah appear, Jesus is transfigured into His glorified state. Moses and Elijah appear and Peter thinks this is... Amazing, because Moses and Elijah are like... I mean, that's the law and the prophets to the Jew, which was everything in the Scriptures. So Peter says, Lord, let us build three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We knew you were a big deal. And at that moment, the Father speaks and shuts him up and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then Moses and Elijah are gone. So as to say, no, no, no. It's not that there's... Three great ones. There's one, and this is him. Um, all right. What about so? Son of God is a title, which is a reference to Jesus's divinity. What about Lord? Does that refer to divinity? Because uh, I mean, a lot of people are called Lord in the Scriptures. In fact, we're told in First Peter three, Sarah called Abraham Lord to the dismay of most 21st century wives. But there is a uh, uh, so, what is what is that, Lord? Isn't that just like, yeah, I mean, people back then, they called people Lord. It was just like a respectful thing, like Sir. So, is that a reference to His divinity? Not spelled that way. Lowercase. Lowercase? Okay. It's not all capital. 
That's true. But I I think that um, even there we should read the L capital L lowercase O R D when referencing Jesus as Yahweh. And the reason is this is made the the point is made in the notes of the third mill lesson on pages five and six. If you want to go back and look at it, or early on uh, in the in the audio or the video, but. When, um, when the New Testament calls Jesus Lord, it's using a common term, kurios, which is uh, just a simple, common word which means ruler or master. This is used scripturally to refer to both human beings as well as God. Um, so it doesn't automatically prove, yeah, that's a reference to divinity, because no, it's not. It's just a common term, kurios, that's, that's used, and it could just be a, a sign of respect. <clears throat> but <clears throat> we get a much clearer picture um, when we understand its connection to Yahweh in the Old Testament. So the, the first um, Greek translation of the Old Testament was called the Septuagint. <clears throat> it was tr- <clears throat> translated from the Hebrew and into the Greek, and wherever there was Yahweh, they translated it as kurios, which is, again, a common term, but it behind that is Yahweh. So when we understand the backdrop of the Old Testament and what is being said um, in those passages that refer to Jesus as Lord, uh, like every knee will bow type thing, and there's even, does anyone have the notes with them? Probably not. You do. Um, do you page six on the uh, on the notes? Will you read the quote from Johnson? Yeah, it says the key to Christian use of the word "kurios" is the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures were written in Hebrew. Yet a couple of centuries before Christ was born, the Hebrew text was translated into Greek. This translation is called the Septuagint. When Jewish scholars translated the Old Testament into Greek, they used the Greek term kurios 6,700 times to translate the sacred name by which God revealed himself to his people, Yahweh. This backdrop is absolutely crucial for understanding the New Testament confession of Jesus, kurios. Although the term kurios by itself does not necessarily imply Jesus' divine the use of this term against its Old Testament backdrop clearly implies Jesus' divinity in a number of texts. That, read the next quote, too. And then Walker says, One of the most amazing passages in the New Testament is where it talks about every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father in Philippians 2. And actually, Paul at that moment is quoting from Isaiah where it was a hymn of praise that everyone would confess that Yahweh was the Lord. Now he's deliberately taking that Old Testament passage and saying that instead, Jesus Christ is the Lord. At that moment, it's quite clear the New Testament is saying Jesus Christ is not just a master. He is to be identified with the Lord God of Israel. Very good. Um, That is incredibly helpful. And again, you know, we would often say you can't understand the New Testament apart from its original context in the Old Testament. The best way to read the New Testament is to stick a nail through a passage in the New and find its coordinates in the Old. What is behind this that I'm reading? 
So when Jesus is being called Lord, what's behind it is that Isaiah passage, he's being called Yahweh. Um, if you don't, if your Bible, when you're reading, you know, you might have a study Bible, and that's good. But the thing that I think that you have to have is little coordinates in the margins that will just tell you other passages that you could reference according to the one that you're reading. So your Bible will have little letters, and in the margin it'll say, you're reading in uh, Philippians, and in the margin it'll say, uh, what was the other passage? Isaiah. Isaiah, or an Old Testament passage or something. And a lot of times you're able to make connections like that, which will just enrich and enhance your Bible study. So I would, I would commend that to you. Very good. All right. What are a couple implications as we think about the divinity of Christ? Um, what, what should we think about in application to our lives, to our relationship with Him? His work was sufficient because He's, he's infinite, He's eternal. Yep. Yeah, only God could save humanity from sin, and He has in Christ. What about the thought, you know, there's a lot, everyone's pretty cool with Jesus being a good example, right? I mean, a good human. Um, but this kind of removes that as being, yeah, you can say that, sure, he was that, uh, the perfect human. But you can't only say that because, you know, he is God. And so he is to be worshipped, he is to be prayed to, he is to be served as Lord and King. Um, and I think that that is very relevant to, I think everyone, we live in a spiritual age. I had a conversation with a guy yesterday. He told me he wasn't religious, but he's spiritual. And I bet you're going to find lots of people like that. Well, I don't really, the religion thing, I don't know about that, but I'm spiritual. And if you're spiritual, you're probably okay with Jesus as kind of a spiritual guru, as a guy that kind of showed a good way. And yet, we don't have that option when we understand that Jesus is God. Um, all right, let's switch gears a minute and talk about his humanity. Why would somebody have a problem with, um, the, you know, people sometimes have questioned Jesus' divinity, and that's been pretty common in recent so called scholarship, kind of liberal scholarship. But also in the early church, they questioned his humanity a lot. Why would somebody question his humanity? Because it might uh, give the perception of Yahweh. Yeah, it makes, I mean, God is God. He's not like us. And so we're, it can seem like a spiritual route to take, right? No, God would never. Uh, stoop so low that that he would be like us. He would never uh, take on corrupt humanity. And to that we would say, well, he didn't take on corrupt humanity. He was a perfect human. He was not corrupted. And yet he did take on uh, humanity, true humanity, and died in the place of corrupt humanity, right? But I think that that would tend to be, God. God could never become like us. God is God. And uh, that can sound spiritual, but as Will will talk more about next week, you don't have a gospel without the divinity and humanity of Christ. You need both. 
Alright, how do lines 4 and 5 in the Creed speak about Jesus' humanity and divinity? The, the lines 4 and 5 are, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So how does that speak to His humanity and His divinity? He wasn't born into sin. He was biologically fathered by God, but birthed through a human. Very good. Um, but even when you say that, so some people would, would say, oh yeah, we believe that. And they would say, yeah, the father came down and had sex with Mary. Is that what you're saying? Huh? Kind of like Hercules. And that's not what we believe. Um, you know, he was supernaturally uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I'm assuming uh, an embryo placed in Mary's womb we do know that he grew very naturally, um, that she had a term pregnancy, that there was a time when it was not noticeable and then it became more noticeable and you know it, it happened over time as he grew in the womb. So we can even see there the supernatural conception and yet the very normal human path and the humility of God becoming man, even an infant, and totally dependent and helpless on his mother. Um, it's hard for us to comprehend, and yet that's speaking to both. That's why they would put both there in the creed. What else about that? Yeah, I mean, if I think that, I think we pretty much covered it. Uh, what would you say to someone if? And I don't know that they would say this, but we're just trying to cover our bases here. What would you say to someone if they said, uh, well, Jesus didn't have a dad, so he's really not human? I mean, make you think. Well, Adam didn't have parents. Is he human? That's the perfect response. Adam and Eve... Who is their dad, as we tend to think of it? And if are they human? If they're not, then we're not. <laughs> you know, if they're not, no one is. So you kind of shut them up pretty quick on that one. I think that's that's where you should go with that. Um, there are some occasions where people are born outside of the normal uh, process of conception, and yet they're certainly fully human. Okay. We'll kind of end with Jesus' suffering. Did Jesus really suffer? Because, I mean, He was fully God in His time on earth, so and He is fully God, so how much could humanity make God suffer? What do you think? He did suffer. Because he's not only fully God, he's fully man. Right? And so, um, I kind of asked it in a way that would maybe put you on your heels. But I think, yeah, he did. He did really and even fully suffer. He suffered in normal ways, like hunger. When you uh, read the narrative of his temptation in the desert that comes at the end of fasting for 40 days, and it says that he was hungry. 
Um, you know, even in temptation, that's suffering, isn't it? Isn't it suffering when you're tempted and, and your temptations feel like they're, uh, you know, pretty heavy? Yeah, it's suffering. He uh, suffered in grief. Remember the passage where he laments over Jerusalem because they're lost. And um, he's, he's grieved at the lostness. It also, the creed mentions that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, which is the suffering we tend to think of. Um, he was flogged, he was mocked, he was tortured, he was beaten. He was spit on and he was ultimately crucified. And there was a very real suffering. Uh, the, the writers of the creed put under Pilate likely just to emphasize the fact that he suffered historically at a particular time in a particular place under a particular ruler. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor that sentenced him to death that said the worst of Jesus' suffering and he did suffer in all of these ways uh, the worst of Jesus' suffering did not come at the hands of Pilate at whose hands did the worst of his suffering come God's how I know what you mean (laughs) I'm not sure (laughs) yeah the wrath of God, the worst part of the cross was not the nails through the hands and feet. It was not the uh, physical pain or torture or emotional pain of betrayal. Uh, it was the all-encompassing pain of being subject to the wrath of God, the Father. So, why is Jesus' humanity essential to our faith. So without his humanity, he wouldn't have been able to fulfill the debt that we owe. That humanity had incurred. You're right. The teaching of the scriptures that he's the second Adam. Um, that where Adam failed in obedience to God and brought the curse on humanity, Jesus obeyed and reversed the curse. And he took on himself the sin debt that humanity owed to God. But it had to be a human payment. So, um, again, Will's going to talk more about that as he talks about the work of Christ, but the humanity of Jesus is essential. And what are a couple implications as we close of the humanity of Christ as we think about our lives and implications and applications to our lives? The humanity of Christ. Yeah. Talking about who is Jesus, uh, what is you know walking through the Hypostatic Union, and what the Scriptures actually tell us, versus uh, what you know what we assume to be to make ourselves comfortable. It's a great point, and that's a great application. As we pretty much everyone assumes that Jesus is a real historical person. I mean, most people that you come in contact with are going to give you that. So to start there and say, well, let's talk about him. <laughs> you know, what do we know about him? What do you say about him? And 
using that as an opportunity to speak about him truthfully from the scriptures. What else? What what are some other implications, applications? It's important to be able to say that we have a God that can identify yeah. with our struggles. Yeah. Where, you know, you go to India or wherever polytheistic country and it's the gods are just they don't know. They don't know. And, and even weird. like in Islam, I don't think that that's one of the things that they're right. holding dear to. They might think that Allah is all-powerful, but um, the compassion and sympathy uh, would have to be missing there. Listen to Hebrews four, fifteen and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin... Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. So a sympathetic high priest, a sympathetic God, one who has sympathy and identifies uh, with our temptations, with our weaknesses, with our frame and all of its limitations. You know, I think about this. There are certain temptations that you will experience that are frankly so vile that you would not tell them to someone. I mean, they don't make it to the accountability group meeting. You know, we we might polish them up and say them generally, but if we're being honest, all of us have things that we're tempted and the nature of some of these temptations are just, they're wicked. But Jesus understands. He's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And in fact... He has seen the full range of that temptation because He never gave into it. We've seen it to the point until we gave into it. Um, he has seen the full range. He was never tempted internally and dragged away like we are, but externally, He, he has been tempted yet without sin. So think about that in your temptations. All of them are fair game before your Lord and Christ because He's a sympathetic high priest. What else? What are some other things as we think about the humanity of Christ? Well, this is kind of the same as Brandon a little bit too, but even though we suffer, it doesn't mean God doesn't love us. And just even like the, the cancer, I mean, Jesus wouldn't have asked God to remove the cup from him if it wasn't going to be hard, if it wasn't going to be terrible. Yeah. But obviously, you know, God is not loving Jesus by making him do that. We all have a purpose that you know, a life planned out that God wants us to walk with Him. And even thinking about the pastor just being diagnosed, I mean, it's beautiful when you see people that know God. They know the suffering is not painful. Yes. They, they, they suffer well because they know God loves them. It's not their circumstances. And we see that in Jesus. I mean, and it doesn't mean just because you're afraid or you don't want to do it that you're not spiritual. Or right. Or not, you know, that it's hard. And Jesus shows us that it's hard. He didn't want to do it either. But yeah. Yeah, very good. You also think about Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11, Come to me all who labor and are heavenly burdened, and I will give you rest. Um, you know, give me your burdens. They're heavy. I'll take them. I'll be yoked to you. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I'll teach you peace and rest in your souls. When Jesus offers to take our burdens, we have to understand a couple things. Number one, He has carried the heaviest burden. And so he knows how to carry your burdens. Uh, number two, he is able because he is God. So it's not only that he's sympathetic and human and compassionate, but he's also almighty. 
and all-powerful. He is King and Lord and Christ, and He is able. Um, humanity and divinity right out, right there. All right, we got to quit. Any parting shots? Any thoughts? Two thoughts. You get all this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, I mean, Jesus' humanity, man wouldn't make God. I mean, it, again, it proves the evidence of, of our faith. I mean, you know, Allah doesn't come down. Yeah. Other gods come and beat us the way Christ was. That's a good point. <clears throat> You do get next week, but you also should take now. That's <laughs> true. That's true. Philippians, Philippians 2, uh, the humiliation of Christ. I, I think uh, in our culture, we, we do love ourselves, so sometimes we don't realize how being made, he, how he made himself nothing, mm. how big of a deal that is yeah. for, the, for Yahweh, to make himself nothing, yeah. to be like us. Yeah. Um, there's a separation between us and God yeah. um, because of sin yeah, I just think that's a uh, point of emphasis that you know, he laid aside his powers mm-hmm. um, he made himself nothing Yeah. and even though we love ourselves a little, a little too much sometimes we're, we're it's a pretty big step down yeah and for the rest and, and comfort that that provides but also the example of okay so He's calling you to lower yourself, empty yourself, and serve another, uh, even those under you. And you think, but that gap that you're ca- called to go, it's nothing compared to the infinite God coming into uh, humanity, coming to earth that He created. So that would be our motivation, too, and our empowerment to go and serve. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know if it's... Some days it's encouraging, some days it's depressing that He gave us... Every example we need, and you empower us fully to do it. Um, so all my excuses are gone, which is doesn't feel like that a lot of times. But yeah, um, I know that I can be holy. I yeah. know that I've got all the instruction and all the empowerment to do it. Um, so that's the challenge for us. That's right. Let's end with that, and I'll pray. <clears throat> Father, it is uh, discouraging at times, as Sam has said, because we we see ourselves against the backdrop of Your holiness and perfection and glory. And Lord, we have fallen so short of Your glory. And yet we are so comforted in thinking about Your um, divinity, Your humanity, because You are God with us. Lord Jesus, You came to save. You came for sinners. You came to stand in our place. And um, we thank You for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you're with us even now. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit. And uh, we do pray, empower us to follow you, Lord, in humility and emptying ourselves and lowering ourselves in service to you and to others. And uh, help us to rest secure in the provisions that you've made. Help us to know you truly. Uh, please do give us wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of you as you've revealed yourself and, and give us boldness and empowerment to share with others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.